Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time joining us from the United States, Jason Stanley, the author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. First published in 2018, newly topical with Donald Trump's announcement that he plans to stand for president. If you think that equating Trump with fascism is going too far, either you haven't been paying attention or you haven't read the book. I also want to talk to Jason about Brexit and modern UK politics, which shares many of the features of fascism as he identifies it. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We haven't got a millionaire backer. There's no big media corporation behind us. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. So please, if you can, think about subscribing. You get more details over at bylinetimes.com, our newsbreaking website. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. So go on, take out a subscription if you can. More details at bylinetimes.com. Jason Stanley, welcome to the Byline Times podcast. There was a comedy in the 1980s in the UK called The Young Ones, in which one of the housemates called anyone who disagreed with him a fascist. The word has become a catch-all and maybe even devalued. And I'm just wondering if part of the reason that you want to reclaim the word fascism and bring it back into mainstream discourse is because of your own family experience. I think that's true in my case, though we're right now four years away from the publication of my book. The president of the United States already called Trumpism semi-fascism. We're well past numerous lines in the sand that detractors of the fascism vocabulary set forth. People said things like, it's not fascism unless it denies democracy. It's not fascism unless they try to stay in power. It's not fascism unless there are violent militias. Each and every one of these objections was long since responded to by reality itself. And so the issue now when one talks about, quote, the fascism debate, unquote, is more who was the first to point it out, not anymore its descriptive adequacy. The events of January 6th convinced even folks like Robert Paxton, the great historian of 20th century fascism. And as far as my own family history bearing on how I managed to be early on, as it were, in describing reality and making predictions that came out to be uniformly true. You know, I grew up in a family, both of my parents, refugees from the European Holocaust, that was very well aware of analogies between the United States and European fascism. They were aware that Black Americans faced what they faced in Europe, and they made me aware of that from a very young age. One of the reasons I mention your family history is that I think perhaps in the UK, we associate fascism very particularly with the death camps, with the Holocaust. That's not what we're describing in your book. I mean, thankfully, to some extent, that's not what we're describing. But the fact that we don't have the death camps doesn't mean that it can't be fascism. It's odd that you say that because Oswald Mosley was a British fascist. You come from a country with a very rich tradition 
of slogans like Britain for the British. You come from a country that was on the forefront of European fascism, uh, and it was beaten back by immigrant Jews <laughs> and local Jews and the Battle of, uh, uh, what is that? Battle of Cable Street in the East The Battle of Cable Street, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you come from a country that very publicly had a fascist movement with famous speeches that resound through 20th century British history. So I think it's odd, you know, I use, when I talk about the UK, I use it as an example of how you can have a fascist social and political movement that doesn't have death camps. <laughs> it's precisely the UK that that shows, that, that demonstrates that all of our countries had fascist movements. And in our case, our fascist movement was called the Ku Klux Klan, the second Klan. Uh, Sarah Churchwell, the brilliant Sarah Churchwell, has shown in detail in uh, Behold America how there were numerous fascist movements in the interwar period. And Trump's own America First movement was one of them. <laughs> Trump's phrase, America First, was the name of a movement that was led by Charles Lindbergh, who the Nazi government themselves viewed as a future Hitler in America. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan, we know from multiple sources, the Nazis borrowed extensively from Jim Crow law, for instance. Now, maybe the, the role World War II has psychologically in both of our countries is to absolve the population from the sense that their own country has a fascist past and a fascist tradition. That's the role that the Battle of Britain plays, for example. But that role is just silly for any person who knows about history. I mean, uh, you know, you guys fought with bricks and stones on the streets of British cities against your fascist movement in the 1930s. <laughs> so, and it's, you know, we know that Britain for the British is still there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got a home secretary who has referred to migrants as an invasion of our country, albeit a home secretary who is a self of migrant heritage. And we've had, certainly in the 1980s, street fights, street battles against fascists and We've had movements like Rock Against Racism, which were explicitly anti-fascist movements. So I don't think there's any pretense, really, that it, it's right. disappeared from the, the British political vocabulary. What someone like Mosley shows is that Britain has a history of upper class fascism and the sort of black shirts on the streets fascism. Britain has both. <laughs> I want to be careful because I don't want to accuse the Brexit project and the supporters of Brexit of being fascists, but you define a number of features that you describe as being indicators or precursors of fascism. They include the evocation of a mythical past, propaganda and anti-intellectualism. And people who heard the Brexit debate here in the UK where they saw the claim of hundreds of millions of pounds going to be returned to the NHS if we quit the European Union, that we don't trust the arguments of experts who were demeaned by the Leave project. And you think that within that debate, there were certainly many of the elements that you describe as proto-fascist. If you want to make democracy wobble, then you attack truth. You attack any basis of you know, this is almost cliche at this point, 
but you, you feed into people's prejudices to undermine a shared reality. Sometimes you're really duping people. And I think that's what happened with Brexit. I think the United States is somewhat different. In the case of the United States, what you have is you have fairly committed white supremacists and a fairly committed white middle class and upper middle class that doesn't want their kids confronted with the ugliness of our racial reality. And so there's more of a conflict, more of an open conflict. In the case of Brexit, you had such intense disinformation. Uh, Carol Caldwaller, of course, has done a remarkable job in, in showing this in her amazing TED speech for which she uh, she she got sued. Uh, she showed how people in these towns believed entirely false things about the European Union. Social media campaign, pure disinformation lies. I think that these tropes of disinformation wars are a little bit misleading because what happens is social identity is manipulated and people think, oh, my social identity is under threat. And so it's the structure of the manipulation takes the form of great replacement theory. And that's what you had in the case of Britain. You had, I would say, a fascist logic behind the Brexit campaign. Uh, the fascist logic being the British are going to be replaced. The European Union is all about allowing the replacement of British by non-British people. We know from the work, say, of my colleague Jennifer Richardson, who in 2014 showed that if you prime people with something like great replacement theory, then they respond in a much more right-wing way on a whole host of political questions, including they start to become more skeptical of man-made climate change. So that's what happened with Brexit. They employed a fascist logic. It's the logic the fascists employed, great replacement theory. Oswald Mosley employed it in Britain. And they said the European Union is going to be the engine of your replacement. This is fascist logic. Does it mean that the people who ended up voting for Brexit are fascist? No, any more than it doesn't. Or, or maybe, I don't know. Does it mean that, you know, standard thing when you talk about Nazi Germany, that there were many people who voted for the Nazi party who weren't fascists. <laughs> they just voted for them because they preferred them to the alternative who they regarded as corrupt, effete, out of touch elites who they wanted to see humiliated and vulgarized. Now, that's who fascist politics appeals to. Are they fascists? Well, no, but it's a commonplace that fascism only wins if many people who would strongly reject the label of fascist vote for them. You talked about Americans not wishing to confront the realities of race in the United States. And we have very lively debates here in the UK about the role of history. We have an organization called the National Trust, which seeks to present some of the great national monuments in a broader historical context than many conservatives would like. And indeed, recently there was an attempt to change the management of the National Trust so that some of these historical perspectives would be squelched. And thankfully, that was seen off. But even so, people who tried to tell the truth about Britain's imperial history are very often the victims of attack in the media. And again, I see this correspondence between what happens in the UK and what you're describing happening in the United States, that the, the idea of the past has to be protected. We can't really be honest about the past. That is a defining feature of, of what you describe anyway as, as fascism. So right now, I'm working on publishing my father's dissertation 
which is called Origins of Change, the British Construction of the East African Intellectual. Now, my father was a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote his dissertation in Kenya. He lived there from 1959 to 1962, because he saw in the British eradication of the Kikuyu population, the Kikuyu traditions, and the true Kikuyu culture, genocide of the sort that he experienced. What you're seeing, you know, you asked earlier, well, can we talk about Britain and fascism? Well, you know, every study of fascism centers colonialism. I mean, Du Bois in The World in Africa says that Hitler was most angry about the loss of Germany's African colonies. So when you're talking about British imperialism and you're talking about the desire to hide the crimes of British imperialism, that will lead to future terrible errors, not just the erasure of things in the past, like reading my father's dissertation, he talks about Operation Anvil, when the British took 50,000 Kikuyu out of Nairobi in a search thing and put them in concentration camps. And he writes as if that will never be forgotten. I hadn't heard of it. <laughs> you know. And then when you look it up on Wikipedia, it's like, oh, a very successful counterinsurgency. Uh, you know, He writes about it like it was a horrific mass atrocity. <laughs> and so these are issues of international justice. The British erased whole cultures violently after World War II. And so uh, these are great crimes. And of course, everyone wants to hide their great crimes. You know, that's true in the United States and that's true in Britain. And those of us who fight for the truth independently of fascism try to prevent that because what happened to the victims, history should never forget. And British imperialism is one of the great crimes. So it must be terrifying for Britain, honestly. Uh, but, you know, the link between the fight to prevent people from confronting their past is certainly part of fascism. The ultranationalism that goes with fascism involves the glorious imperial past that robbed from you. You list the, the 10 features of fascism in your book. Well, you do more than list them. You explore them and exemplify them. In government, what defines fascism? And I ask that because part of my mind thinks, well, look, you know, was the Soviet Union a fascist state? Is communist China or was communist China under Mao a fascist state? Are we talking about any authoritarian, repressive, nationalist regime which combats those who challenge it and question it from within? Right. So no, fascism has to be based on a kind of ethnic nationalism, a great imperialist past that has been lost. It's a kind of reactionary modernism, to use Jeffrey Herf's term, whereas communist authoritarianism is rationalist in character. You know, we're going to kill a lot of people now so that the future will be utopia. The fascist viewpoint is not that. It's not some rationalist calculation about the future. They, of course, use technology, but the technology is mystified in, say, German fascism. But the idea is we're going to restore a great past. I mean, I guess if you had a kind of brutal genocidal agrarian communism, it has to be based on ethnic nationalism, religious nationalism. Nationalism is a 19th century thing, as is communism, ideologically. But they're very different. You had a fascist internationale. But it was kind of conceptually incoherent because it was like each group was like, our group's the best. But a communist international is very coherent because 
communism is not based on nationalism. The whole idea of communism is supposed to be a linking of people who share the same economic class interests across national differences. So it's, in a certain sense, the very opposite of fascism. You wouldn't deny that it can be repressive, brutal, and authoritarian, but it's just not nationalist in nature. It's not nationalist, and it looks very different. You know, there's that literature about how East German women had more orgasms under communism. You know, like like it looks like feminism. Men and women suffer equally, you know, under most uh, communist repressive regimes. It's not patriarchal in the same way. Now, of course, individual communist regimes like Castro could be kind of anti-LGBT and individual communist regimes, uh, Xi in China right now, that's first of all, looking a lot more like Han nationalism, and there's ethnic genocides. You know, you should not have ethnic genocides motivated by communism. When you do, it's often an imperialist or fascist element, and this is the basis of the analysis in the book, The Fascist Persuasion and Radical Politics, where the author argues that behind the Soviet Union's atrocities was Russian nationalism, behind Mao's atrocities was Han nationalism, so that's a view. But generally, I would say there's just very different authoritarian structures that oppress in different ways. And you need to be thinking about different things when you face one rather than the other. You reference Bolsonaro in Brazil in your book. You reference Modi and the Hindu nationalism, which has taken a grip on politics in India, obviously Trump as well. Would you say unreservedly, that these are fascist movements? Oh, yeah, they're fascist movements. Now, they're not fascist regimes. You know, I'm not theorizing fascist regimes. Fully fascist regime are when you sort of do away with even the trappings of democracy, which none of these countries have done. But Bolsonaro wanted to. Bolsonaro was calling for a military dictatorship to be reinstated. But no, they're all fascist movements, sure. They're fascist movements in the same sense that if someone like Mosley had gained power, uh, it would have been a fascist movement. You know, not all fascist movements are Hitler. Mussolini wasn't even Hitler. Early Italian fascism wasn't even anti-Semitic. There were plenty of Italian Jewish fascists. In the case of Hindu nationalism, it's particularly easy to demonstrate because one of the objections people make is they say to the fascism thesis is what is the causal connection? What is the causal ideological connection? In the case of Modi, you know, the BJP is the political wing of RSS, which is explicitly descended from Nazism. They praise Nazism. Their originators praise Nazism explicitly. They say, what we want to do to Muslims, what the Germans did to the Jews. You mentioned uh, a little while back the fact that East German women were reportedly had more orgasms during the communist era. And things, again, that resonate with this book with me at the moment is the war on women, the global war on women. I've recorded at least three podcasts which have reflected on that theme and the desire to restore patriarchy, the desire to return to the notion of a traditional family seems to be integral to this idea of fascism. Exactly. And that's another difference between communism and fascism, because there is not that focus on the traditional patriarchal family. Indeed, there's a critique of the family. 
So that is integral to fascism, because when fascism wins, it does so by getting non-fascists to support it. And the two most important non-fascist blocks are social conservatives and the business elite. So when fascism presents itself as the defender of rigid gender categories, one of the main targets of Nazi propaganda, one of the chief targets was Magnus Hirschfeld. Who's Magnus Hirschfeld? He was a gay German Jew who was the director of the Institute for Sexuelle Wissenschaft in Berlin, which had thousands of books and photos documenting and theorizing the fluidity of gender categories. Their first major book burning was of that archive. Uh, so Nazism always presents itself as a defender of rigid gender hierarchies. It accepted gay male Nazis, but they were still macho men. Uh, they were violent stormtroopers until they were all massacred in the Night of Long Knives. So fascism always focuses on this defense of rigid gender hierarchies. And by defending rigid gender hierarchies, it can appeal to people who are committed to rigid gender hierarchies, primarily social conservatives. If you said to politicians on either side of the Atlantic or indeed around Europe and other parts of the world, people who do not dress in uniforms, people who do not jackboot up and down the street and said to them, you are a fascist, they would vehemently disagree, wouldn't they? They'd say, no, we're democratic politicians. We're putting our, our arguments out there. In the way that, let's say, Oswald Mosley's supporters did not deny that they were fascists. They were proud to call themselves fascists. But we have politicians today who would vehemently seek not to be associated with fascism, who you are calling fascists. I think this is true. I think that suggests that the term fascism has acquired a pejorative meaning. In America and Britain, you can't use the terms because our countries sort of define themselves as having fought fascism. Now, we fought fascism with segregated troops under the Jim Crow regime until 1967. My marriage to my black wife was illegal in some U.S. states. <laughs> um, the Jim Crow regime is the inspiration for Nazism. I mean, you have something similar in the United States, actually. You can't really call politicians Jim Crow politicians because the expression Jim Crow also now has pejorative uh, connotations. But it seems foolish to me to deny that people are seeking to bring back some forms of Jim Crow in the United States. Brutal voter suppression, violent policing on minority black populations, especially in southern states, DeSantis's election patrols. So you have something similar because the civil rights movement made the expression Jim Crow sort of anathema. But, you know, if if we're talking about what fascist movements were internationally, if you're talking about their properties, if you're talking about their logic, you can use the terms. I mean, if you don't want to get anyone upset, you can say you're exploiting fascist tactics, <laughs> you're arguing for fascist policies, <laughs> and you're creating a cult of the leader, <laughs> you know. So you might not want to call that fascist, but <laughs> it's not really clear what else to call it. So in other words, I don't really know what to do with that fact that people would reject the label. It's acquired a pejorative connotation. Well, of course, people would deny being fascist because it does have that pejorative sense. I mean, it is a it is a difficult conundrum, isn't it? And it does get you into quite a difficult area of argument. But none of this promotion of, 
fascist ideas would be possible without a pliant and enabling media. I always find it one of the most troubling parts of the discussion here in the UK is that many people who support what I regard as fascist ideas attack the MSM, attack mainstream media. Yet the media that they support, which itself is mainstream, is very often a supporter of these kind of politics and these kind of politicians. One time I was at a conference with a former white supremacist leader who then became detransitioned, as it were, and now gets people out of those movements. And he said, there's two aspects to the movements. There's the people in jackboots and then there's the people in suits. So there's the media in suits. You wouldn't have a movement unless you had a media wing that was bringing sort of threats to other journalists, calling the other journalists liars, etc. You need to have this alternative world to support this funded and it's been funded internationally by russian money for example and israeli nationalists folks like sheldon adelson i'm not sure who the funders are in britain specifically but you're not going to have a movement without a media arm of the movement you're not going to have a movement without politicians in suits that are the legitimate face of the movement who can say we're not fascists. It's the people in the combat boots who are fascists. Are we wearing combat boots? No, and we're not wearing combat boots. But as we see in the United States, and as the January 6th showed, there's kind of a back and forth between the people in the suits and the people on the streets. And there's a back and forth between the pro-fascist media and the people on the streets. You know, there are marching orders to be given. There are signals. I'm speaking to you in a a country where judges who were simply upholding the law of the land were described on the front page of one national newspaper as enemies of the people. That gives you an idea of the temperature in the UK sometimes. Jason, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. And I do urge our listeners to check out your book. It is called How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, something we're all too familiar with here in the UK. That's Jason Stanley. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Please take out a subscription if you can. Head over right now to bylinetimes.com for details of how to subscribe. It's been great having you along. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again sometime soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.